love without rules. Love without rules. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, is our scripture for the year. We've been saying this over and over again. Now may God, the inspiration and fountain of hope, fill you to overflowing with uncontainable joy and perfect peace as you trust in him. And may the power of the Holy Spirit continually surround your life with his superabundance until you radiate with hope. Amen. <coughs> Today's message may be a little bit different, but promise me you'll stay to the end. Nobody's going to promise okay, so you can leave halfway because you may. But I want to talk to you today. Um, there was a movie called Chronicles of Narnia. Most of you probably don't watch TV, so you probably have never seen that. But anyway, there's this movie called Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, Lucy is a little girl in this movie, and uh, she sees Aslan. Aslan is Jesus. Well, not Jesus, but represents Jesus. And he's a big lion. Well, she didn't see him for a year or quite some time, and she goes and she sees him, and she says, Aslan, you're so much bigger. He says, no, Lucy, I'm the same, but you have grown. And so I'm mindful of, you know, when you, uh, when you think of Jesus, I remember years and years ago, Jesus was, you know, to me a certain uh, way, but as I grew, I'm not talking about in stature, you know. I mean, I've been five foot eight and three quarters ever since I was 21. Five foot eight and three quarters <laughs> since I was 21. But anyway, I haven't grown. But um, as we grow spiritually, as far as knowing and figuring out God, who He is to us, as we grow, guess what happens to God? He gets bigger to us. His perception to us. So today, I mean, but he relates to us at different parts of our growth. And how many know that if you got a two-year-old, you're going to relate to them differently than when that two-year-old gets to be 10. And you even relate even differently when they get to be 16 and even when they're 20s or 30s, you know. I mean, you wouldn't expect your two-year-old to say, okay, I want you to go ahead and take care of the dishwasher, load it and everything, and start the dishwasher. You wouldn't tell your two-year-old that. They wouldn't understand that. I've got two boys, 19 and 20, and it's really tough for them sometimes. So I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't tell two-year-old that. But uh, so I love my boys. They're awesome. I'm going to hear about it, though. But anyway, you relate to them differently. I want to talk to you today a little bit different about something in the Old Testament, how that God related to man, how he relates to man. And I want you to remember that illustration about your different, how you deal differently with a, your two-year-old, your 10-year-old, 16. God is the same. Were you the same when you dealt with your two-year-old and when they turned in? You're, you're basically the same person. But uh, you dealt with them different. They were the ones that were changing, not you. I want to tell you today, God has been that way. God is the same. He's the same. But the way he interacts with man is very different, is very different. So, you know, I, if you look back at our society and our culture thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, 
it was pretty barbaric. It was just really rough. And if you study culture and history, I mean, even not very long ago, during the Civil War, when people, if you got the flu or sick or something, they would cut you and bleed you, called bleeding. I mean, that is just barbaric, and that wasn't too long ago. And then they had other things that they would do. They put leeches, you know, 50 leeches and stuff all over. I mean, that's just rated R. I mean, you put leeches on your body and just lay there and let them suck on you. That's pretty barbaric. They did that during the Civil War. That's crazy. They did so many terrible things. And we think, oh, that is just terrible what they did back then. I'm pretty sure if the Lord tarries a thousand years from now, that society is going to look back on us and go, did you hear how they took care of cancer? What, they, what were they, th- how they took care of that disease? And they were driving on roads? I mean, they're going to look back at us and say, man, what a primitive society we are. So it's going to keep doing that. But when we look back, it's funny how we look back and read the Old Testament. We don't incorporate that. We just read with our 2020 mindset. And I'm not talking about your vision, 2020. I'm talking about the year. But you got to know this. At the time of Abraham and before Abraham, people didn't understand things. You know, not to what was it when a microscope, I mean, a couple of hundred years ago, they didn't even know what germs were. Then they looked something underneath a microscope and said, it's moving. It's alive. They didn't even understand germs. I'm not for sure if this is true, this statistic I saw and read, so don't mark me. Even like 150, 170 years ago, one in five babies died just because the people didn't wash their hands. Well, that's crazy. A baby died just because, well, you just got all these germs on your hands, and then you go and handle the baby, and you stick your finger in its mouth, and, you know, it just grows. And they would die. They didn't understand because they didn't understand about germs. Well, can you imagine thousands of years ago? Not under, they didn't even understand why crops grew, how, or what caused them to grow. They just started putting seeds in the ground, and and when it would rain, guess what? The crop would start to grow. So they didn't understand sometimes when it didn't rain. So what they started doing, man had fallen to a really barbaric state, society, and so they just started incorporating all kinds of gods. They would have a plant god. They would worship the plant god. They would worship the rain god to make sure it would rain. They would worship the sun god because they really weren't for sure if the sun was going to come out tomorrow. But you're fine. Anyway, they weren't for sure about this. So they would worship a sun god. They had tons and tons of gods. And so you can understand that when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. You remember reading about that? What happened is there was the sun god. They had all of these gods. And uh, none of those gods were working for them because they are not true gods. So they would pray to these gods, but nothing, and do things to these gods. Back at the time of Abraham, they, would, they started a sacrificial system because they wanted to sacrifice to the gods, plural. So they were growing crops. And so what they would do is they would take a section of their crops. They knew, I had a, a pretty good idea that the gods were way up there. 
in space and beyond the sky, not down here. So they would burn a section of their crops and let the smoke rise up to the gods. So they were sacrificing to the gods. And then, coincidentally, if it would rain the next day and their crops grew, they would go, the gods heard us. But the following year, if they did that and it didn't happen, they would think, oh, my goodness, it's not working. And they would come up with a solution. We need to burn a bigger section of our crops. We need to burn more. We need to sacrifice more. The gods are angry because we did, we did the same amount last year as we did this year. So we got, we got to burn more. And so that kind of sacrificial system was throughout the whole country, the whole world. And so it grew because, you know, these gods, we got to make sure to keep them happy. And so they went from crops to, their, to birds and animals. They started sacrificing animals to the gods. And then they went on and started sacrificing their prize sheep, their prize cattle, their favorite best cow. They would sacrifice to the gods, and to where they would come to this phrase, the most high God. And then it progressed to even more. They started sacrificing people. The planet. I'm not talking about just one sect of people. I'm talking about the culture of the planet was to sacrifice people. It got to the point that it even went from there to the next level is sacrifice your kids. And then it went even higher to sacrifice your firstborn. That was the culture of the land. Now, you got to remember, children were the livelihood of a family. If you didn't have a lot of kids, you, you may not make it. You know, back in those days, you needed to have as many kids as possible to plant the crops, harvest the crops, wash clothes, and take care of this, and cook, and, and build a barn. And do it. So you needed lots and lots of kids. Kids were a big part of society, and you needed them. God, you've got to have more kids, woman. So they would have as many kids as possible so they could make it. But I, I don't know what it was in the time of Abraham. I'm sure the infant mortality rate was pretty, pretty high as far as losing babies. In the medieval period, from the 5th century to the 15th century, I looked this up. One statistic showed this, that 30% of babies died. One statistic even said as high as 50% of babies died. 50%. So in other words, you know if you're going to have 10 kids, five of them aren't going to make it. So you would want to have as many as possible. So no telling what it was. There's no statistic that we can look back in the time of Abraham. So, but more than likely, eh, it was probably a lot of dying going on. I even remember when we were in Africa, you know, it just seemed like there was always funerals. Holy cow, there was people dying all the time. And part of it was because of what I'm talking about. Even in my time, they didn't understand and know certain things medically. So people died. People died. And so back at the time of Abraham, it got to the point to where your most high God would require the firstborn. That was just the culture. And so lo and behold, God gets a hold of Abraham. There wasn't too many people serving God. 
walking with God, calling upon the true God. So God calls upon Abraham. Abraham hears him. He starts obeying. He leaves his family, leaves his city, and goes to a place where he had no clue. And he wanted a child, and lo and behold, he waited up until he was almost 100 years old to believe God. God told him he was going to have a child. 100 years old, he had a child. I mean, no, that's pretty special if you're wanting to have a child at age 100. But anyway, he has this child. But what's the culture of the land? Culture of the land is to make sure to please and to make life go good for you, the most high God, you would offer your son. So lo and behold, the time of the culture was exactly like that. So God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. So I don't know about you. I've been serving God for a few years, and if God, my mother, my best friend, all of you all would say, you need to sacrifice your firstborn. I'm going to go, no, I don't think so. I'm never even going to entertain. I'm never going to. No, no, no. And we would think that's crazy. And we read that in Genesis, we think, what in the world? God, were you flipping crazy or what? Why would you ask something like that? But we can get some of the clues because of how Abraham responded. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through 3. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take your, now your son, and just to make sure you understand, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and go to the land uh, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of these mountains on which I shall tell you. <clears throat> in verse 3, <coughs> Abraham, he rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son. Do you see anything strange there? He just said, okay, no problem. No, God, uh, this is my only son. I mean, he didn't even, didn't hesitate, didn't. He just loaded up, and he knew what to take to sacrifice because everybody knows what to take to sacrifice. He loaded the wood up, his servants, and off he goes to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son with not one hesitation and not asking one question. What in the world? Why? I'm going to tell you why. God or Abraham knew there's going to come a day when God, the most high God, is going to ask me to sacrifice my son because my firstborn because that's just the way their culture was. That's just the way their culture was. It's crazy. But this is what I want you to get out of this. God, first of all, he is so patient with mankind where they're at. You know, just like you got a two-year-old. You're patient. Well, you should be. You're you're patient with them. You know, that two-year-old, they spill stuff all the time. Thank God somebody came up with a sippy cup. So now if you spill it, it's not a big mess. But before that, when I was growing up, Kids were just, we were cleaning, you just clean up. Okay, here it is, go ahead. Why don't you just, sometimes you just feel like, I'm going to knock it over for you. Okay, I'll clean it up. 
It was crazy. I mean, you just, you just cleaned up after a two-year-old all the time. Just, just clean up, clean up, clean up, clean up. And that you just know that's just what you do. So here God is. And Abraham knows that God's going to offer or want me to offer my firstborn. But I believe this is what God, he's so patient with us just like you are with your two-year-old. He sits there and goes, right as Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice and kill his son. God says, Abraham, stop. I mean, right in the... He says, I don't want you to kill your son. Listen to me. I don't believe it was so much of a test for Abraham as far as testing him to see if it was good. I believe it was for Abraham to realize the most high God, what he was really like. I believe God was telling Abraham, the culture of the land is to sacrifice your firstborn. But I just want you to know, Abraham, I'm not like that. Did you get that? Not only am I not like that and asking you to sacrifice, I'm going to provide a sacrifice for you. You don't even have to provide it. I will provide it for you. That's the grace of God. So, it seemed like things were getting a little better because they went from people to uh, animals. How many think that's a good progression? I mean, that's, that's, that's better, right? And uh, so they went to, from people to animals. And so they were sacrificing the animals once again. They, they were, God was taking them from there. He was on a trajectory of something better, something higher, that would be better for mankind. But he dealt with man right where he was at in that culture and history right where they were at. In other words, for a thousand years, uh, they could be doing the same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. Barbaric as all get out. God didn't show up and start talking to people and says, listen, you just, I'm talk, you got to stop everything. Even at the time, uh, there's a document, I don't know how to say it, but it was found by Mesotomian. Mesopotamian, the Babylonian people. Anyway, that uh, some of the laws that Moses got from God were already in existence. A lot of people may not know that. In other words, those laws, everybody didn't read them. "Ah!" They were well known. This is what happened when God wanted to come down to the children of Israel he told Moses, he says, tell the people to get ready. Tomorrow I'm going to go and we're going to, I'm going to greet them. I want to have fellowship with them. We want to have a relationship with them. Moses told the people. The people showed up. The next day, God shows up on a mountain. The people are terrified. Moses goes toward the mountain. Everybody else is exit stage left. They're running. For their, you know, they're just running away from God. And so they tell Moses the next day, say, I tell you what, Moses, you go and find out what God's rules are. And what he wants us to do. And we'll do them. Why? Because that's what the gods required. They required rules to be worshipped. They required rules to show your love and appreciation. Which were not gods at all. Just to be plain. But that's what they came up with. That was the culture. So they just brought that same culture to Moses and said, go get them. God. He worked with them. He says, okay, these are the rules. But little by little, God started giving them rules that were better than what the culture was to start bringing them to a higher place. Y'all follow me? 
So he started doing that. I mean, it got to the point to where uh, they would hear some of these rules and go, what? It was so like, even though it was just a little bit, it, it, it was just so shocking to the people. It was shocking to the people. And so they were sacri- having this sacrificial system still, killing animals, killing stuff, just bloody. I mean, how many remember when they, Solomon built the temple? I mean, they sacrificed thousands of animals. We're talking blood everywhere. I'm so glad I did not. People say, oh, the good old days. No, they weren't. No, you can have a path to your bathroom if you want, but I don't think that's a good old day. Much less can me. I would not. God would never call me to be a pre- priest back in that day. Mike, I want you to be a priest. What do I have to do? You got to kill stuff, blood, cut it open and stuff. I go, no, I'm good. Uh, I'll, I'll dig ditches. I'll do whatever. I'm not doing that. Blood, just thousands and thousands. But listen, this is where people were at. And guess what? When they had the temple celebration of Solomon, God showed up in the midst of all the blood. He showed up and blessed the people. So you would think, if you look at that point of view, that this is what God wants. He wants sacrifice. He wants this is the way it is. Oh, really? Then David comes along in Psalms 51, 16. Psalms 51, 16 says, David goes, You do not desire sacrifice. Or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. What? David, did you read Exodus and Leviticus and Genesis? I mean, there's sacrifice. And God's saying sacrifice, kill this, do that, split this open, get the guts out of this. And God was saying that. David goes, nope. You don't require sacrifice. You don't require burnt offerings. I don't know about you, but if you burn a cow, I'm pretty sure that's stunk to high heaven. He says, you don't require burnt offerings. And if you go on, I, I've looked this up. Jeremiah says that God doesn't require sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 1, you can write this down. He doesn't require sacrifice. Amos chapter 5, Micah chapter 6, 1 Samuel chapter 15 says, God does not want or require your sacrifice, never did. Wait a minute. So people read that, and they say, obviously, the Bible is contradictory to itself. It's because it's saying he didn't, and then it says he did. No, what you're not understanding is God would deal with people right where they're at if they thought that sacrificing would cause them to have a better relationship with their God. Then God says, okay, we'll do it this way so you will feel like you can have a better relationship with me. But he says, all alone... I didn't require sacrifice. It was not what I need. I do not need you to kill your cow to have a relationship with me. And I definitely don't need you to kill your firstborn to have a relationship with me. Are you getting this? So my point is this. If you look throughout history of the Old Testament and say, this is what God is like, you'll miss it. No, this is how he responded to people at that particular time. A thousand years later, he did it this way. Thousands of years later, you get to King David, and he goes, I just want you to know, I don't require sacrifice. And so when David starts talking like this, everybody's going to go, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? 
If we quit sacrificing, our crops aren't going to grow. The sun may not come out tomorrow if you quit sacrificing. So the relationship with God was based on a performance relationship. While God was trying to lead them out of that to a love relationship that has no rules. I'm just saying. If you make God about a moment and say this is what God is like, you and I will miss him. We'll miss him. God is taking man on a journey, and all through that sacrificial system, he comes and he ends it all with the sacrifice of Jesus to make his exclamation point. There are no more sacrifices, period, after Jesus. But Paul comes along and says that we are a living sacrifice. God is not into killing stuff to be sacrificed to him. But he is into life and things living for him, a living sacrifice. God's all about life, not death. Are you hearing me? So, I mean, if you just study things by the culture, the Bible starts to make a lot more sense. Do you realize in in the 1800s, Christians used the Bible to validate slavery? Because it's in the Bible. Slavery is in the Bible. 1865 is when slavery was abolished. Do you know how many thousands and thousands of years man had slaves? It was just part of the culture. It was just part of life. And we're not talking about one sect of people. We're talking about the whole world, the known world at that time. In Deuteronomy chapter 15... Verse 12, it says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your winepress, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to do this thing today. So what is God doing? The whole world had slavery going on. But God comes along and says, all right, I'm going to deal with you where you're at. But what I'm going to do is this. You're going to own that slave for six years, and on the seventh year, you're going to let him go free. But I don't want you just to let him go free. You're going to bless him abundantly. You know what people thought about that when people who served God started doing that? They go, what, are you crazy? You're messing up our whole society. We can't, we can't bless slaves. What are you doing? We can't do that. So what's God doing? He's leading them on a trajectory that would cause people to be set free. All humans to be known as equal people. That's, his, that's what he's doing. But if you're doing that for thousands of years, you can't show up on the scene and just say, hey, this is, you're do, all doing this wrong. God is just patient with us, I'm telling you. And then you go to the New Testament, and he deals with slavery still. And then, but this is what he takes it to a higher place. He says this, if you hurt a slave, they are free to go. So you can't be going around abusing slaves. 
God says, no, that's wrong. What is he doing? He's taking them to a higher place. So if you go back in the Bible and say, well, I just believe the Bible, what it says, and we're going to do what the Bible says. And so that's what they did in the 1800s, and we had slaves. Stupid. Stupid people. Come on, that was stupid. And it was all because of the way they were interpreting some things in the Bible. From a religious, spiritual, stupid standpoint that God said, if you do that, you're going to miss me. possible we could be missing him today. During the time of the Roman Empire and even before, they had a law, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's written in God's law, but it was written before even God had that law. And this is the way the law worked. If you were a rich society and you accidentally poked a guy's eye out, the rich man could pay you for you losing your eye. I don't know what it was back then, but I don't know if it, it kind of reminds me, you know, my mom when I was growing up, don't run with the scissors, you'll poke your eye out. I don't know if they had a bunch of scissors back then, but it sounded like, why would you even need a law about losing your eyeball? But evidently they did. So if you cause some guy to lose his eye, if you were a rich man, you could give him money. But if he was on the same social economic status as you, you could poke his eye out. Eye for an eye. But if he was poor, you, you don't just poke his eye out. You had the right to put him to death, kill him. God, Jesus comes along. And he says this. He makes a statement like this. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. And if everybody was there, they should have said, yeah, God said that. But he said, but I say unto you. But I say. In other words, he's changing this whole thing, and he's not saying. There's no such thing as upper class are going to be treated different, and middle class is going to be treated different, and lower class is going to be treated different. As far as God is concerned, we're on an equal basis, and you need to stop that. Jesus starts teaching and preaching like this. And to be honest with you, I believe the Pharisees and Sadducees were more ticked off about him teaching on social status things than the spiritual status things because he was turning the world upside down. What do you mean we, we got to treat people equally? What do you mean you, we, got, we got to do this? And Jesus takes it further. He says, hey, listen, it's not just an eye for an eye and everybody on the same status. I'm, he's leading them on a trajectory, a progression to go up higher. And he turns around and says to them, says, if somebody's mistreating you, turn the cheek and, and, and act as if it didn't happen. So the people are going, what? Are you, are you, you're just, we can't live in a society like that. And he goes on further. He says, now, he's going from how you should treat people to how you should even treat your enemy. And he sits there and he says, you need to love your enemies. Okay, now he's gone too far. The Pharisees and Sadducees says, we got to come up a way with a kill this man. He has lost his mind. I mean, the way he's saying treat your slaves, to treat your enemies, to treat common folk, to treat poor people. He's... We can't do this. So that was why they wanted to kill him. 
one of the reasons. But Jesus is leading everybody to a higher place. Ever since Genesis 1 and Adam and Eve, he has been leading people from where they're at to a higher destination. He's still doing that with you and me today. But it's not based upon rules and regulations. It's funny how we take some of the Old Testament and we elevate a certain rule over others. You know, I've said this a couple of months ago, you know, like, you know, you, sh you shouldn't have a tattoo. In that same chapter, it says, don't wear cotton with linen. Have you ever heard a preacher preach on that one? All right, men, if you've got a cotton linen T-shirt, let's take it off. Women? Okay, we won't go there, but you know what I'm saying. But how about this one? You won't hear this one preached on much. I got it. Nobody got mad at me the first service, so I'm going to go ahead and say it in the second service. If a woman was on her monthly cycle, you know, she was unclean. So the law was you can't go in public and you definitely can't go to church. So why isn't that law preached? Okay, I want the greeters to start asking all the women, young women. Excuse me, I'm coming here. So is it, is it, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come in today. Why isn't that law preached? It's funny how we can just say, I want this law, and let's live by that law. There's over 600 laws. And if you pick one, you got to live by all of them. All of them. Jesus said, if you break one, you're guilty of all of them. So you got to keep them all. The point, you can't. You can't. So... So what is the answer? In Luke 18, 18, it talks about Jesus. This guy comes up to Jesus and says, what do I need to have eternal life? Jesus rattles off a few of the things. And he says, I've kept all of them since my youth. If I would have been there, I would have said, liar, liar, pants on fire. Because <laughs> one of them was to honor your parents, you know, not to lie. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. You've never lied. And he says, since my youth. So since he was a kid. So you know what Jesus does to him? He sits there and he goes this. So you're telling me you've kept the law. So Jesus gives him another law. And the law is this. He knew that he was a rich man. So Jesus sits there and tells him, I want you to go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man goes, he probably thought any law you say I'm going to be able to keep. He just went. The Bible says he turned around because he was Rich, and he couldn't do that. You know what I know? Jesus, first of all, do you know that's not a law? You can't find that in the Old Testament from Genesis to, to Malachi. You cannot find that law written in there. You know what Jesus did? Oh, you, So you want to be closer to God by serving him with your abiding by the laws. Jesus just goes, whoop, pulls him one out of thin air. I'm serious. He pulls a law right out of thin air and goes, okay, you're keeping the law. Uh, here's one for you. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. It wasn't even a law. But Jesus just said, okay, here's a law for you. Try that one on for size. See if you can keep that. 
So when people are bringing up the laws, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, then we need to bring all 600 of them back and say, can you keep all of them? The answer is going to be no, with a capital N and a capital O and 1,400 exclamation points. None of us can keep the law. But there's good news. The Bible says the law is not for you and me. Can you say amen? I didn't know this growing up most of my life. You know, we weren't allowed to work on Sundays because that's against the law. Only time I was good is when my mom wanted me to cut the grass on Sunday. I said, it's Sunday. She says, oh, you're right. Wait till tomorrow. Because you don't work on the Sabbath. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says this. This is in your Bible. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Stop right there. The law was not made for a righteous person. The reason that it's emphatic, that it's so strong that you get a hold of what we've been preaching here, that you are the righteousness of God. Not because of what you do, but because of how Jesus made you. He has made you righteous. And if you don't understand that you're righteous, you're going to try to live by law. But the law was made not for the righteous, but it was for the lawless and subordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers, fathers and murderers and mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there are any order other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law was not made for righteous people. It was made for people who would think this way. I need to do right so I can get to God. So the law has never been done away with. The law is still in today. But this is the thing. It's to point people that if you want to be close with God and to do it by the law, then the law is alive and well and you have to keep it all. So that's why the law is for today. It's to point people to Jesus. To say, I can't keep the law. And God's going to say, yeah, I know you can. That's why you need to receive Jesus and, and believe in him. And he will make you righteous. He will make you righteous. Your performance can never make you righteous. That's why we have the law today. But granted, know what the law is for. Know what it's for. I'm going to read some scriptures. I'm running behind because I hear the piano. Galatians 2.19. They're not going to be up there. I'm just going to rattle them off. But because the Messiah lives in me, I've now died to the law's dominion over me so that I can live for God. I've died to the law. Galatians uh, or Acts 15.10. You can write these down. The law is an unbearable yoke. Romans 3.20. The law reveals sin, but cannot fix it. Romans 4.14, if the law worked, then faith would be irrelevant. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath upon those who follow it. Did y'all hear that? People say, we need to keep the law. The law causes wrath to come on you, and you want to keep it? Bless God, we need to keep the law. We have no idea what we're saying. Romans 5.20, the purpose of the law was to show an increase of sin. 
1 Corinthians, I'm going to skip over. I've got about 30 scriptures about the law. So for those who think I'm cherry picking. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. The law is a ministry of death. Oh, what's your ministry? Death. We have all the laws. Ministry of death. Is that a preach? It's a joke. Galatians 2.21. The law frustrates grace. Galatians 3.13. The law was a curse and that Christ came to redeem us from it. Oh, I'm going to stop. I'm gonna, how about one or two in Hebrews? Hebrews 7.18. The law is weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. Hebrews 8.7. God has found fault with it and created a better covenant and acted upon better promises. So what did Jesus mean, though, when he said uh, the law shall never pass away? This is what he's saying. He says the law never pass away because we're always going to need it because there's always going to be something in man to make him think that I need to do something so my relationship can be acceptable to God. So we have the law to say, okay, here you go. That law will point people to Jesus. And then God comes along and says the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? The law has been fulfilled. Well, if you had a mortgage on your house and somebody comes by and pays it off, gives you a check. I said this to Jeff this morning. He was, I said, Some, Jeff, if you had a mortgage, come by. And somebody gave you a check and paid it off, you know. I said, that would be paid in full. It would be paid in full. If somebody tried to collect, if the bank made a mistake and sent you a, a, a bill, you would say, hey, I've got a document here that says it's paid in full. You could say the mortgage really hasn't been done away with, but it's been paid in full. The law has never been done away with, but it's been paid in full. It's funny, Jeff came, he was walking out this morning and he says you pointed to me and gave me that illustration he said that happened to me I went wow my prophet didn't know it I didn't know but anyway it's a joke he said yeah he says that somebody paid my mortgage off I'm telling you it's paid in full if you look at the Old Testament Jesus sits there and he makes a statement to everybody and he says if you've seen me you've seen the Father Nobody else has seen God but me. There again, it looks like Jesus is lying. Do you know how many people have, it's recorded that saw God? Adam and Eve walked in with God in the cool of the day. What was that? How you doing, God? Fine. Fine. Doing good. Everybody's good. Yeah. What, were they blind or what? They walked with him. So many people, it's recorded. Jacob wrestled with God. How is that? Get me in the headlock, and he's, I gotta find his head. Is he blind? Well, he closed his eyes. I don't know. Maybe that's why he lost. He was when I had his eyes. But I'm telling you, people saw God. So what was Jesus saying? What was Jesus saying? He's saying all the people before me have had a small piece of the puzzle. You know, at Christmas time we have a tradition. We build a thousand piece puzzle. Aren't you thankful for the picture of the box top? But this is the problem. Everybody in the Old Testament didn't have the picture of the box top. 
They just had a piece of the puzzle here and a piece of the puzzle there. What if I gave you one piece, Bruce, and I said, tell me what the puzzle is. One piece out of a thousand. How good do you think you could describe it? Not very good. All from Genesis all the way up to Jesus, people had one piece, maybe 10, maybe 20 pieces. But you still, no matter how many pieces that you have, just a few, you're not going to be able to tell. Okay, tell me what the box top is. What's it a picture of? But Jesus comes along and he says, I can tell you what the picture is. It's me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you see how I respond and act towards people, you've seen God. All these other people before me have not seen him, not known him. They've had a piece of the puzzle here and a piece of the puzzle there, but they haven't seen the box top picture. It's me. So don't read and try to figure God out. Well, this is what he's like, and this is what he's like, and this is what he's like. If it's outside of Jesus, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Are you confused, or does this make sense? It makes the Bible and the Old Testament come alive. It makes it understandable that God was not a barbaric person. Kill this, kill that, and do this, and do that. He was dealing man right where he was at because he is patient and he is kind. The Bible says it's his goodness. It's his goodness that causes people to repent, which means it's his goodness that causes people to think differently. You're thinking wrong. And he's not going to sit there and say, you're doing wrong and you're doing, I'm telling you, you're doing wrong and you're doing wrong. And that just makes you want to repent. That's the way we brought it across. But God says, no, I don't work that way. The way that I deal with people is I meet them right where they're at and I show them goodness and kindness and favor and it causes them to want to think differently about him. That's my father and that's your father. Let's stand. Praise God. So, we just keep Developing our mindset of who God is. And like Lucy with Aslan, we grow. And as we grow, God gets bigger to us. He gets bigger to us. He becomes more gooder than he was. Don't correct me. I know it's not the word, but you, I want to make a point. Pastor, that's really not a word. There's a lot of my words. I'm from Kentucky. We know how to communicate those. We just don't know grammar. But anyway, my point is this. God wants you to know the more that you understand him, you're going to realize the better he is. The more loving he is, kinder he is, and, yes, the gooder he is. He gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Why? Because you're starting to comprehend him to understand him. People say, why was God so mean and big and ugly in the Old Testament? He wasn't. Just how he was dealing with man where he was at. It was showing love. Same way that he showed love to the Pharisees and Sadducees. By preaching law to them. Why was he preaching law to them? But to the prostitutes and tax collectors, he just loved on them and just showed kindness to them. What was it? 
He was saying, you, you think you're close to God by keeping law? I'm going to show you. There's more laws. Here you go. It's the goodness of God. Father, we thank you and praise you that you're causing us to see you in a greater light, causing us to realize the goodness of God, causing us to change the way that we think about you. From Genesis to Revelation, God, you are the same. You change not, but you're causing us to change and to grow and to think differently about you. Help us to take this message outside these four walls and let people know that God is good. In Jesus' name, amen.